Um, we called this series Friend because the crux of what James is trying to get across in this series is, are we a friend of God or a friend of the world? And James's aim in this series is to convert the converted. He is talking to Christians and saying, yes, you have confessed Christ. You may have been going to church, but you have not been living and acting like a Christian. So if you are among us today and you do not call yourself a Christ follower, you do not call yourself a Christian, don't worry about it. You can learn today some how James views Christianity and how it should be played out. A lot of people outside of the church think the church is hypocritical. They say one thing and do another. James agrees with you. You're in good company. And he is tired of it. And so he writes this letter to the church because he is tired of the hypocrisy of talking and saying one thing, but letting your actions do another. So today we're going to actually get through some great theology of, uh, of God, so our understanding of God and our understanding of human nature. Uh, and we're going to be reading from James chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. I'm not going to read the entire passage. I'm going to go through bits and pieces since it's a little bit longer than what we usually are reading. Uh, And so I'm going to start off in verses 13 to 15. And today's message is called the implanted word, the implanted word. So starting off verse 13, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What, a, what an intense last word to end up on right there. So we just finished two weeks on testing and how God tests us. And the purpose of testing is to produce a perfect and complete faith. And so James then wants to make a clarification right away that, yes, God tempts us, uh, God tests us, right? That, that's what James is trying to clarify, but he does not tempt us. And so he uses two very similar Greek words, but two very different words. And so James wants to clarify and dive deeper in the difference between the testing of God and temptation, And so the first thing that he makes very, very clear is this. God does not tempt us with evil. So if you are struggling with sin in your life, that is not a test from God. You know, sometimes we get that wrong. We we are struggling with sinful desires and sinful things in our life. And we chalk that up to God. Well, God is testing you right now. That is not a test from God. That. James makes it very clear. God does not tempt us with evil. The temptations that we have are this. They are due to our fallen nature and the evilness of our own desires. So let me give you a couple of examples. This is an example of a test. A test that I personally received from God. You know, nobody likes tests. And you're going to see that, you know, tests... Tests are not fun, but we're supposed to rejoice, you know, in our, in our trials. So learn to rejoice in them over time. Uh, inside joke, if you were here two weeks ago. 
But the, one of the, the tests that I had, one of the more significant tests of my life, and if you go through membership class, you hear about this. I talk about it in the history of our church, is before this church got started, um, I had pastored, I was the lead pastor at uh, my home church for two years until you know, uh, the elders and myself just uh, prayed and felt like God was calling me to plant a church or start a church. Uh, and usually when you go to start a church, uh, all the church planting material, all the books that you read, all the trainings that you go to, they tell you to do one thing. Take a year to develop a core team that you meet with regularly of like 25 to 30 people uh, so that you can begin to figure out like who's going to be part of the church, who's going to be that core team that helps launch the church, you know, go start looking for funding, you know, find a, a place that you're going to be at, uh, find a location, all of these things. It's supposed to take you an entire year to do this. So I knew when I was no longer being lead pastor at my last church that I had one year before we were supposed to plant uh, Zion and begin uh, what God wanted to happen. So I start, you know, I, I, I leave, I have my first day off, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, like, who am I going to call, how am I going to announce this, you know, where am I going to start fundraising, uh, and God speaks to me very clearly, and he says, Justin, you are taking, you are getting a mandatory year off from ministry. I'm like, okay, that means that you will not tell anybody about the church plant, you will not fundraised for the church plant. You will do no work for this church plant. For the next year, you are going to just sit on your butt and you're going to have conversations between me and you. And so said, okay, this, this doesn't make sense, but fine, let's, let's do that. Now, this sounded cool about a year away from church planting, right? Uh, now, fast forward six months and I'm thinking, I got six months to... Uh, Start something, God, and we got no people, no money, no location, nothing. I think right now I have recruited my wife and Judah. <laughs> that is it. And so I start, I begin to have different kind of prayer. God, why are you being silent right now? Why are you being quiet? Why aren't you speaking to me? I want to do something, right? Sometimes we are so obsessed we're doing ministry for God that we forget to have a relationship with God. Yeah. And so I, I, I go on this, this crazy path in my head thinking, God, I, I want you, I, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this, I want to do that. Why aren't you speaking to me? And God clearly speaks to me again. I am speaking to you. I'm telling you not to do anything and you just don't like it. <laughs> so calm down. Right, this is how God speaks to me. Very, very assertive, very strong. This is what I need in my life. It's in my timing. Didn't make any sense. I'm, I'm literally in church planting classes where every month I'm reminded of what a bad job I'm doing getting ready for this church plant and what I'm supposed to be doing. But God has me still nothing, still nothing. This was really a test as I look back at that now of was this church going to be something that I did and from my hands or would it be something that God did? from his hands. And that's what he was trying to get across from me because the day a year later that I woke up one morning and God said it is time to tell everybody that the church is starting. Within 6 weeks we were fully funded, had the first core team uh, beginnings of who we we're going to start with and everything that we needed to get going that should have taken a year 
to get that going. God made it happen within six weeks. Amen. So a test produces something else. Now I know when God says, sit down and wait, I'm going to take care of it. I know from my past experience that I better sit down and wait because God's going to take care of it. But temptation is my heart being deceitful and wicked above all else, which is what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. And James uses this analogy about temptation. It's the pregnancy analogy to show how temptation works. James says it starts with desire, something that you want, something in your heart that you look at that. And I want that. And then after desire, it's like, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a man. So a regular temptation would be like, look at that pretty girl walking by. Or maybe it's a big house on Instagram that stirs some desire. Or maybe it's a promotion at work that's coming up that stirs some desire. And then James says, boom, after that desire, you got a full grown, conceived baby of sin growing on in your stomach. And then you let that marinate for a little while. You know, you daydream about what it would be like to get that promotion and have more in your paycheck and you look at that house on Fixer Upper and think, (laughs) what would it be like to have shiplap on my wall right now? And after you daydream on it for a while or you think about it, eventually what happens is that desire, that conceived sin, gives birth. And you have full-grown sin in your life. It may be that you wake up a morning and that pretty girl or pretty boy is in your bed next to you. That nice house causes you to overspend in search of comfort or material living that you're trying to acquire from what you saw on Instagram or HGTV or maybe that promotion that you wanted made you do some shady things that got you ahead but not in the way of how God calls us to do things. All of those may feel good for a moment, but after sin is conceived, James says, it grows. And when it is fully grown up, there is only one thing knocking at your door at the end. And it is death. Your heart may want this boyfriend or girlfriend in your life, but all they do is produce sin. What will happen? It will bring you to death. Your heart wants more money, more material things, more possession. But all it produces is greed and consumption in your life. It will bring you to death. Sin's singular child in your life is death. The only thing that sin will produce in you is death. When sin is conceived and when it fully grows up and when it is given birth in your life, there is one thing waiting for you in that moment, and it is death. There is nothing else that sin can bear. There is no other fruit that it knows how to make. 
A fig tree makes figs. An apple tree, I went apple picking yesterday, makes apples, right? There's no pears on the trees, although I could have used a nice pear yesterday. (laughs) Sin in your life will only produce one kind of fruit, and that is death. So I had this rule when I was single. I would never trust myself to know if I was hearing from God about who I wanted to date. Why? Because of the simple fact. When you want something really bad, all of a sudden God wants it for you too. (laughs) You ever experienced that in your life? Just something just, man, I want this so bad, right? It could be a new job. It could be a relationship in your life. Whatever it is, you want something so bad and then you meditate on it. You daydream about it enough. You think about it long enough and all of a sudden Oh, yeah, God is speaking to me about this right now. I'm really sending the Holy Spirit on this, you know? He's he's really, I I think he really wants this for me as well. Yeah, I I think so. I needed somebody in my life that was objective and mature in their faith to walk alongside me. So when I was making those decisions that I realized that if I make decisions with my own deceitful heart, that desires things that was too close to the matter. I have found when something is God, pretty much most people know about it. Most people agree with it. It's not just me that thinks about it. And so what James is trying to get across is that when we start to realize our hearts have evil desires and how all these nice things that we desire are actually leading us to death, Then and only then will we realize our need for God in every decision. See, if we disagree with James about our where our desires are leading us, our natural human desires, these evil desires, then we will disagree with James and with Scripture on our need for God to be a part of our decision-making. The reason why Christians believe or should believe in bringing God into every decision is because we realize our capacity for evil desires at every turn. If we do not, then we unknowingly follow our desires into death at every turn. And so James is making a clarification. This temptation does not come from God. This temptation comes from our own evil desires, and our own evil desires will conceive sin, and sin will only bring one thing in our life, and that is death. So if our own desires are at fault for temptation and God is not, what is God responsible for? Well, let's read verses 16 to 18. James goes on. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I love this because there's more pregnancy imagery, right? We've been talking about this kind of dualism that James brings into scripture of you are either a friend of the world or you are a friend of God. And he keeps on comparing and contrasting. And this is going to go on throughout the rest of James. And so if our desires kind of conceives and we bring forth death, then what does God conceive? Well, 
It says here, of his own will, he brought us forth. And those words, brought us forth, has the same imagery of giving birth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God's desires, where God leads us to, where God has us going, is new life by the gospel to be first fruits. See, the evil things in our life, the things that lead us to sin, we cannot blame God for that. We have evil desires to blame for that. We have human nature to blame for that. But God here, he is described as what? The father of lights, meaning all light emanates from him. In him, there is no darkness. John chapter one, verse four says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. All the good things that we have in our life, there is only one person to thank for those things, and that is the light of our life. And the only reason why we have these good things, now I always love to define good things because we can be saying the same words, but meaning totally different things. Some people would define good things as the bigger house, the nice boyfriend, and the promotion at work, but... If those good things lead us to bad things like greed, deception, and ultimately death, are they truly good things? So the only good things that we have that as Christians we argue is the gospel that leads us to salvation. If it is the only reason why we have those things is why, James says, of his own will. Desires for us to have good things. His good and perfect gifts. And it is because of His will that we have them. Jesus, when He came as a light into the darkness, as a light into the world, came to this world not because we desired and wanted it, but because of God's own will and desire. You know, many times, as Christians, it can, we can lose our frame of reference and walk into what's called self-righteousness. And you can walk into this whether you are a Christian or not and think that, oh, because of who I am, because of what I've done, I get what God gives me, his grace and his mercy, but... We read all over scripture that it is not because of us. Scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was no perfect person that said, hey, I'm I'm good enough, God. Now I, I get my goodness and I get these perfect things in my life from something that was inherently in me. And scripture argues that because of Adam's sin, inherently in all of us is not goodness, but is these evil desires And the only good thing, the only perfect thing that we receive to block out that darkness with its light is Christ, his gospel, the good news, the word of truth, as James puts it. To what? Be his first fruits. 
In scripture, we see first fruits, which is us, connected with all these amazing things. We are the first to rise from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, it says that in chapter 15, 20, and 23. It says that the first fruits are the founders of Christian communities. In Romans 16, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 16 and 15, literally what we are doing here, founding a Christian community. The elect in heaven are the first fruits. It says that in Revelation 14, 4. It says the remnant of Israel are the first fruits in Romans chapter 11 verse 16 having the pledge of the Holy Spirit is something that the first fruits of God gets in Romans chapter 8 verse 23 so what are the good and the perfect gifts what is it that God gives us well all these things that come with being the first fruits of his creation see and we're defining what good things are many times we look at defining it from a perspective of what being a friend of the world is which means more money more power, more privilege, but God says actually those things, those desires are evil and they will lead you astray, but if you really look at the good things and the perfect gifts that I give you, you will be a first fruits and you have my spirit, you have community, you have communion with me, you have the Father, the gospel, you are the first to rise from the dead, so when we're talking about good and perfect gifts that we get. We have to define what is good and perfect. Ones that lead us to eternal life or ones that will leave us when we get to eternity. If our evil, if our desires are evil and God is the giver of good gifts, that brings James to this point in verse 19 to 21. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James is saying you need to stop, you need to listen and be humble or be lowly as we read about last week. You cannot think you are always right and that you know best and receive what good gifts God has for you. It's impossible. Instead, when you realize that actually James is right, the things you have led yourself to with your desires has led you to death, then you realize maybe I don't have it all together. Maybe I need to stop Talking, which essentially means stop knowing it all. The people that don't shut up are the people that think they know everything. And instead, maybe we need to listen, listen to someone else or something else that has a different perspective. Maybe we need to humble ourselves. And that, James says, when you, when you are slow to speak, when you are quick to listen, That is when you, what, receive with meekness the implanted word or the gospel which can save your soul. You know, I I was, when I was in college, I had started college ministry and our college ministry went really well. So after one year of leading something, I thought, you know, I got this down pat. I'm pretty good at this. So. Uh, I began to pastor the youth ministry at our church, and 
Every time my mom or my dad would try to give me advice or want to sit down and talk with me about it, I would just tell them, don't worry about it. I got this. You know, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. You know, uh, I, I can do this better than what the advice is that you're giving me. Really prideful. And every time that we would sit down to talk, it would really be no listening on my part. You know, how many know that you can keep your mouth shut and still not be listening? Right? How many of us do that? that? That I may not be talking, but let me tell you, there is a lot of chatter going on in my head. And I am not listening to one word that you are saying. You know, there's something, they actually have to define listening differently nowadays to actually mean listening. So that now we start, we call it active listening. Because active listening is when someone is talking to you, you're not just thinking about the next thing that you're going to say. Because if you're just thinking about the next thing that you're going to say when someone is talking to you, you are not listening to them. And so now we have this new word, right? We, we, listening was not enough for us Americans. We had to learn of a new terminology called active listening, which is actually sitting down and listening to when somebody talks. So I was not actively listening to my parents in my head. I was just thinking, no, nope, I got this. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. I'm not listening to you. And then every once in a while, it actually came out and be like, don't worry about me. I got it down. I remember... Uh, a year and a half later, um, it was after one of our youth services, uh, I had been through hell and back. I was basically burnt out. Um, and after, after one of the youth services, must have been 11 o'clock, I was uh, sitting on the steps. Uh, Stephanie, not, she's not here today. Uh, but Stephanie came up to me and she just asked, Justin, are you doing okay? Uh, and I just began to cry just began to weep uh, because I was not okay. I was burnt out. I was broken. Everything that I thought I knew and all the things that I was being pompous about and what I thought, I, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for everybody involved uh, had really led me to this breaking point in my life, uh, uh, something that I never, ever, ever want to get back to, uh, th- this point of someone just simply asking me a question and me breaking down in tears of there is so much turmoil going. I felt like a failure. Uh, it felt like just like there had been so much, you know, have you ever been in youth ministry? There's just so much drama, man. Yeah, you know, everybody raising a teenager right now, I'm praying for you. <laughs> I had teenagers once a week for two hours and I was crying on the stairs in the back of the church. <laughs> You know, it was like 60 of them, so, but it was crazy. It was just so much, and I thought, man, I, I have this down, and I wouldn't listen to other people, especially my parents. And I remember after this moment, God had begun a restoration process in my life, and one of the things that God led me to do was he led me to go to my parents and to apologize to them. I, I remember one moment I was with my dad in, in, uh, in the basement at the house, uh, and I was just like, Dad, you know, I need, a, I need to say I'm sorry. He was like, you know, what's, what's up? Why are you saying you're sorry? Uh, and I was, you know, I told him I, I thought I knew what it was to be a pastor. And at that point, my dad was pastoring for 25 years. Um, and I thought I knew better than you. And I was really prideful and I was really arrogant. And instead of listening to you, I would talk over you. Uh, and I wouldn't let you lead me in the right way. And so that... When I apologized to him, it really changed the dynamic of the relationship between him and I because I went from a place of 
I know what's best in my pride and my arrogance to realizing actually that led me to a place of brokenness and destruction. And now in going to my dad and saying, all right, I'm here to listen to you. Talk to me. You've been doing this for a long time. You're still alive. I don't find you crying in your room every night, you know, which is basically what I've been doing for the last month. Uh, So there is something that you have that you can teach me that I don't know about this. You know, one day we'll wake up and we'll realize we have led ourselves to destruction. Like that moment that I had in that hallway, we will realize we are broken and that we are in need of a lot more help than we thought. That the ways that we were living our life, that we thought were good ways, that we thought were good gifts that we were giving ourselves, actually conceived and has fully grown into death in our lives. And at that moment, we can get angry and we can be upset and that will, if, if that is the route that we decide, maybe our anger is at God saying, God, why did you let me get here? Why did you bring me to this place? And maybe the anger is at ourselves. Maybe it's at other peoples and just hating the world and hating different things. But what does James say? It says that what? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we decide to choose anger and bitterness and hatred, what will happen is that we will continue to lead a life of destruction. Or in that moment, we will be able to receive with meekness the gospel as a lowly person, no matter what our earthly status is. So no matter how high we have risen, no matter what place that we have made it to on earth, no matter... What accolades and awards and other things that people have thrown on us in that moment of brokenness, no matter who you are on earth, everybody comes to these moments in their life. In those moments, we have a choice of either becoming angry or becoming humble. And when we become humble at that moment, James says that is when you will receive the implanted word, the gospel. That will be the moment, see, we can't forget that James is talking to Christians here. See, this word was already in us. The gospel that we have already heard and the gospel that we already know, but the gospel that we were too arrogant and too prideful to listen to. When that moment comes, we realize that this gospel will actually save us. At that moment, we will put away all of our filthiness and rampant wickedness. What are these things? The things that we go to that we think are good gifts. The things that we go to that say, I know how to lead my life because these are my desires. These are my wants. These are the things that I have. This is friendship with the world. This is what culture, this is what TV, entertainment, politics, superstars, this is what they tell me are good and perfect things. At that moment, we will realize that the good gifts God offers may not be flashy, may not be what we thought we wanted, may not be what we have desired, but those things have led me to death, and the good gifts are what God gives me in those moments. I will take off the good gifts of the world, the filthy rags and wickedness, and I will put them away. Literally, this image that James is 
is painting right here is of taking off of clothes, saying that these filthy and wicked rags, I will take them off. I will put them off from me. This, this, this shirt of filth and this wickedness, the things of this world, they are no longer going to be a part of me. I am taking them off. If we are an adulterer, I'm taking that off. This is not good for me anymore. It has led me to destruction. If we are participating in regular drunkenness, this is how I have fun, the world would say, but has led me to destruction. I am taking that off. If it is pornography, I am taking that off. If it is gluttony, food solving all of my problems, I am taking that off. And for all you skinny people, you can be gluttons too. I see you. <laughs> You just got faster metabolisms and it's not fair. Yes, exactly. That's why I know. I have sinned with zebra cakes in my mouth before. With oatmeal raisin cookies. Thank God. much for some of you. It's okay. Right? Rage at others. This will make me feel better if I get angry. (laughs) But man, those things, they lead you to bitterness. We can put those off today. If it's jealousy, he can say, God, I no longer want what other people have. I just want what you have for me. Yeah. He liked that too. It's <laughs> a good point. And what happens is when we take off, when we put off the filthiness and wickedness of this world, what, what we get in return is the garment of righteousness. In Isaiah 61, 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what God will do to us when we lay down the things of this world, the wickedness, the filthiness, the things that we thought these were good gifts. The Holy Spirit comes and covers us with the righteousness of God so that we can go before him at the wedding feast and say, here I am clothed in your righteousness and not my own, with the garment of your salvation and not my own. It's as Christians, it's easy to think that we know best to forget where our desires lead us. But James reminds us of that path. And he says, I encourage you take off the filthiness and the wickedness of this world. Exchange them for what God has for you. The good gifts of salvation and righteousness. The Father of lights has good and perfect gifts waiting for you today. If you would humble yourself to receive what he has, to be slow to speak, slow to knowing it all, and quick to listen and say, God, what is it that you have for me today? 
Father of lights, of good and perfect gifts, what is it that I can receive from you today? I'm tired of being a know-it-all. I'm, trying, I'm tired of doing it all myself. I'm tired of thinking I know what is best for me, but I come before you today humble with a contrite high heart and meekness saying, God, I'm ready to listen. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of thinking I know what is best for me. My prayer for our church is that we would be a people who know our capacity for sin. Sin that leads us to death and that we would humble ourselves knowing this. That we would stop trying to be know-it-alls but instead that we would receive the good word of God. Can we stand?